Today in our time together, we're going to talk about the matter of perfection or glorification. It won't be long until summer will be here. I promise it's coming. <laughs> and for many of us, the months of June and July will feature some kind of trip that you'll take, maybe vacation or visiting family or maybe traveling on a vision trip or maybe sending your children off to camp. I would suspect that somewhere in that trip that you take, at some point, there'll be a certain thought that runs through your head, you may even verbalize it, and it would sound like this. You know, I can't wait to be home. Maybe it's you miss your bed, there's no pillow like your pillow. Maybe you have a pet that you just really miss, your favorite fish or something of that sort. <laughs> Maybe you like the familiarity of your home, the smells, the chair that you sit in in the morning, drinking your coffee, your particular routine. Maybe it's loved ones that you just aren't around during that time, or maybe as a child, you're being sent off to summer camp, and there's just this sense that you're going to miss home. In fact, children feel this more strongly. They um, communicate when they are sad, when they're away from home. We call it homesickness. However, children are not the only ones who get homesick. They're just young enough that they don't know that you're not supposed to talk about homesickness. So it's appropriate for a kid who's gone to camp to talk about homesickness, but not so much if you're a Marine in boot camp. But the fact of the matter is homesickness, this emotional ache, this sadness, this separation from home, is something that we all feel at different points in our lifetime. I was doing some research on the idea of homesickness, and one person said this, we get homesick because there are things that we love. It is the byproduct, listen to this, of the strength of our attachment. If there were nothing in the world we were attached to, then we wouldn't miss them when we're away. The aim of this series has been to try and help facilitate a homesickness for heaven. To be able to, through the Word of God, help you see the beauty of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, such that there is a, a longing, an anticipation, even an ache to be there. I, I've been praying and hoping that you feel something different about heaven because of what you now think about heaven. This morning we're going to be in a number of passages. We're gonna start in Revelation 21. We're gonna go all over the place. So if you're a note taker, um, good luck today. <laughs> so it, it might be best if you just sat back. I'm gonna walk you through a number of passages. I don't know how many, there's probably 30 and want to do a topical message on this subject of perfection or glorification. In Revelation 21 and 22, we examined last week the new heavens and the new earth, and we sort of skipped over verses five to eight. We did that on purpose, and I want to return to them today and then launch into a number of other texts. Ver excuse me, verse five says, and <coughs> Excuse me. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So that little phrase, all things new, is really important. This proclamation of newness is not just about the cosmic renewal that we talked about last week with the new heavens and the earth, but 
It's more significant than even what you might realize or what you might think. In fact, John goes on and says that there's one who's thirsty in verse 6, one who conquers in verse 7, and in verse 8 there's a contrast of who's not a part of this newness. See, the newness is not just the new cosmic reality. The newness is a new people, a people who have been declared to be new, a people who have been made new. So God is announcing in this text that he is making everything perfect. So what does it mean for God's people to be perfect? Here's what it means. Everything wholly wrong is removed, and everything wholly right is received. Whatever's wrong in the world and whatever's wrong in you is gone. And whatever is right that God intends is now fully received. It means a restoration back to the Garden of Eden in terms of our fellowship with God, and yet with one very important exception, that being that human beings will no longer have the ability to sin. For those who know Christ, it means they will be entirely new. It means no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, and yet as beautiful as that is, there's even more. This newness means that what Jesus is, they are. His glory becomes their glory. His power becomes their power. His rule becomes their rule. It means that what Jesus is, they are. 1 John 3, 2 puts it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will has be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Don't, don't miss the significance of the statement. We shall be like him. Notice, sinful, created, mortal human beings in this moment are going to be made like Christ. What he is, we are. His glory, my glory. His power, my power. His righteousness, my righteousness. His rule, my rule. What he is, I am. It's unbelievable. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 8 says this, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, there it is again, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know what this means? It means that Christ now, because of what's happened to him and what happens to us, can now be counted as our brother The glorification that has happened to him now has become our glorification. His life matches our life. And as a result, God has brought many sons to glory. We all look like Jesus. So theologically, this is called glorification. What I want to do this morning is unpack this concept of glorification I want to show you a number of passages and where this emerges in the Bible because this theme shows up far more than what you realize. For some of you, you're going to see texts today that you have read before, but you've never seen them through this lens. So what do I I mean by glorification? Let's start with a definition. By glorification, I mean a Christian's whole being 
body and soul, reflecting the glory and the image of Christ. So a Christian's whole being, body and soul, last week we talked about the resurrected body, or two weeks ago we talked about the resurrected body and what it means to live in the new heaven and the new earth. In glorification, it's the whole being of the follower of Jesus, both body and soul, now reflects the glory and image of Christ. It is the completion, it is the consummation, it is the perfection, it is the full realization of salvation. It means standing before God perfect in judgment. It means perfection in sanctification as it relates to one's character, one's person, and who you are at your core. It is the full expression of what it means to be united to Christ. When you read in the Bible and it says you are in Christ, glorification is the end product of that. Spiritually, if you've received Christ, you're in Christ now, but in glorification, you are not only in Christ spiritually, you are in Christ in your very being and the very essence of who and what you are. So when the Bible says, all things new. When Revelation 21 says all things new, this idea of glorification is what it has in mind. There are a number of places that we could turn in the Bible to see this. What I want to do is give you six characteristics of glorification. There's probably many more, but there's six of them, and then at the end I want to give you four implications. So we got a long ways to go, and I got 28 minutes and 14 seconds left, so let's roll. (laughs) First, glorification is an act of God. So how does glorification happen? Where does glorification come from? Well, the answer is that glorification is something that God does. Back to Revelation 21 and verse 5. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So the change that takes place in glorification is so radical It is so fundamentally transformational, it is so miraculous that it could only be accomplished by God himself. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 verse 11 says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the miracle of Christ's resurrection from the dead now becomes the miracle of the total transformation of the people of God, and it is God who is the one who does it. So glorification is first and foremost an act of God. God is the one who accomplishes it. Number two, glorification is the completion of the plan of redemption. So think of glorification as the the final act in God's redemptive drama. It's the final step in his redemptive plan. This is what the followers of Jesus long for. This is what we are yet waiting for. This is what we look forward to. This is what we hope in. So justification is the immediate declaration that one is declared righteous. When When a person puts their faith in Christ, God declares them to be forgiven. He judicially announces their complete cleansing of their sin, both past, present, and future. All of their sins have been paid for. That's why it's called amazing grace. 
They are declared righteous. Full pardon is given. And yet, there still is a daily struggle with sin. You've got to work every day and trusting in God, believing his promises, incorporating them into your life. And so while there is an aspect of salvation that is complete positionally, it is not yet complete practically, and this is why glorification is needed. Something else must happen after someone puts their faith in Christ for the completion of God's redemptive plan. So when the Apostle Paul talks about the means by which we are saved, and he talks about the order of salvation, here's how he describes it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the idea is that God is in the process of working out a plan, and the final victory that comes by virtue of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the final victory that comes as he declares his rule over all things means that the curse of sin and death needs to not just be dealt with by the cross, but it needs to be completely eradicated in the universe and within all of us who know Christ as our King. Glorification is when the enemies of God's rule are put under the feet of Jesus. And why does God do this? Why does he complete this redemptive plan? Why is this glorious and beautiful? It is so that God's glory can be seen. Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So why did God work out this redemptive plan? What is he doing? What is the purpose? It is to display the marvelous glory of his grace. In other words, a takeaway from today's sermon should be this. The reason God glorifies those who are his children is not because of his children. He does it so that all of the created order could marvel at the kindness of his grace. To see a massive group of human beings who have been redeemed and saved and been declared to be righteous and now put on immortality and all of them look like Jesus and Jesus is among these people and he calls them brothers. All of heaven looks at this with a scandalous sort of lens and says, my goodness how gracious God is. Third, we talked about this Two weeks ago, but glorification involves the creation of new bodies. The main thought of 1 Corinthians 15 was that our physical bodies are involved in not only the resurrection, but also this reality called glorification. And we saw this text in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. So glorification involves not just something internal that's happened to me, but also something that happens physical to me, and I reflect the beauty and the glory of God. 
And yet what makes this new living reality so glorious is not just what's happened to us physically, but also what's missing. What will, we, what will be beautiful about the new heavens and the new earth is what is not there. And that's where we come to the fourth aspect of glorification, which is it is the final removal of the brokenness of sin. From a theological perspective, the victory of Christ means that sin and death have been defeated, and glorification is essentially the evidence that yes, Jesus won. And his removal of all that is wrong in the world, his removal of everything that's broken in the world, his removal of everything connected to the presence of sin in the world is a statement that death no longer reigns, that the enemy, the devil, no longer has free reign on the earth, and that sin has once and for all been dealt with. So glorification is important not only because of us, but it's also important because of what it says about him. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, when the perishable puts on imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Back in Revelation 21, you heard it read this morning, it's not only that God makes all things new, not only it talks about the thirsty, not only does he talk about the one who is the conqueror, but he also says that there are certain people who are not in God's presence. Verse 8 of chapter 21 says this, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then listen, verse 27 of the same chapter, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Chapter 22 and verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So just, just think of me what it means that there's nothing that's wrong that's a part of the created order, and nothing that's wrong that's a part of you anymore. So everything that is contrary to the will of the heart and the rule of God is completely removed from the universe and from inside you. Your mind and your heart and your body have nothing that is contrary to the heart or the will or the desire of God. There is no temptation, no impure motives, no mixed affections, no wrong desires. Nothing that refuses to submit to God's authority. Everything that is wrong with the world and everything wrong with you is absolutely gone. Every desire you ever have on the new heaven and the new earth will be the right desire. Every thought you ever think will be the right thought. Everything you ever say will be absolutely perfect. Everything you do will have absolutely pure motives connected to them. You can't, just think of how unbelievable this environment will be. We can't even imagine what it's like. Imagine everyone doing everything they should every time for all of the right reasons. I mean, as a parent, like, I don't even have a category for that, right? <laughs> Children, those of you who are here, when your mom or dad asks you to, you know, I mean, they're asking you to do something really big, like unload the dishwasher, you know? It's just, whoa, big ask, right? And that little part of you that says, no, I don't want to. And then you have to... Choose to do what's right. 
Or then when you do right, the part of you that wants to announce it to everyone, clean the dishwasher, put away my dishes. Kids aren't the only one. If you're married, you're in the middle of a discussion, and you know you need to be kind. You just don't want to. You know you need to de-escalate the conversation. There's a part of you just wants to amp it up because you want to be really, really right. You know you should ask for forgiveness. But doggone it, you're tired of asking for forgiveness first for the last 15 years. And you think it's time for your spouse to ask for forgiveness. And all of these mixed motives, all of these dynamics that are part of our human existence, think of those being entirely gone, that every desire of your heart now is exactly where it should be. Every longing that you have, every thought that you think, every word that you say, everything that you do is absolutely perfect and righteous, and there's no possibility of it ever changing. You never have to Wonder, how long is this going to last? It's that way forever. And the former life is gone. I started thinking, you know, so much of pastors' lives are helping people to know what they should do, but also what they shouldn't do. I started thinking, what are we going to do in the new heaven and the new earth? Like, we're going to have to develop a whole new series of, of skill sets to have to tell people not, don't, like, like the word don't isn't even in your vocabulary anymore. It's just a beautiful display of God's glory because everything that's wrong is gone. Fifth, if that's the negative, here's the positive. It also means that the perfect life of holiness has come, meaning that God has now completed our sanctification, meaning that when a believer puts his or her trust in Christ, when they come to faith, there's still a long fight in which they need to be engaged in. And then finally, it is completed once and for all by Christ. Paul said this in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that God's going to complete the work? No matter how much you can look back on your life and go, missed it, blew it, grade C in Christianity, you can rest assured that God's going to be the one who will complete it. The completion of this work means that this union that you have of being in Christ will now, in the new heaven and the new earth, be a reality in an entirely different way. It means that you will partake of the very essence of God's own righteousness. Peter says this, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become, notice this, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So glorification means that we become conformed to the image of Jesus so that we look like him and we partake in his righteousness and we so look like him that he looks like one of us. And that's scandalous. God makes his children totally and 100% 
holy. And that is the goal of our election, our calling, and our justification. That Jesus aims to gather a people, a bride, without any blemish or spot, according to Ephesians 5.27. And he loved that righteous bride so much that he gave himself for her. And imagine living in an environment where loving God and loving one another will be as natural in that realm and as familiar as it is for you to breathe in this very moment. Glorification means that we will be perfectly holy forever. And sixth, it means that we will reflect the glory of Jesus. Previously I've said that we will be like him but we need some additional language here. Because Jesus said in John 17 that the glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus longed for the disciples to see his glory and to share in his glory. The glory of Jesus is the beauty of all that he is. And those who are united to him in this moment possess the same glory that belongs to him. To belong to God then means that you share in the glory. You share in the glory of Christ. Look how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So to be glorified then means that what emanates from Jesus is what emanates from us. And this will be the the beauty and the miracle of what it means to live in the new heaven and the new earth. That what Jesus is, you are. His glory, your glory. His power, your power. His rule, your rule. His righteousness, your righteousness. Everything that he is, you are. In fact, he's among many brothers. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So you understand why the promise of glorification is so important? It means that the Bible means to create an appetite for us of what is yet to come, to create a longing for this glorification. It means that if today you're struggling with some kind of sickness or a regular illness or a terminal illness, that you, you think about what glorification will be and know that one day, someday, you're not gonna wrestle with that illness. If you struggle with depression, you're gonna fight to have right thoughts going through your mind and heart. There'll be a day when your mind and your heart and your affections will be as clear as a bright blue sky. It means if you have wrestled with death of a loved one recently, you'll long for heaven because death will be no more. And it means if you find yourself struggling and fighting with sin, whether in your own soul and the lives of others, there's coming a day when that struggle will be no more. So my, my prayer is that in seeing the beautiful description of glorification and the promises in the Bible, that you will long for that day when your whole being, soul, and body will reflect the glory and image of Jesus, that there's something within these verses, all of them, that creates this longing within you to say, oh, I can't wait for that day, I can't, 
I can't, I can't possibly imagine what that day will be like, and that day will be the culmination of everything I've ever longed for and loved. So I've spent a lot of time this week looking at a lot of different texts, and as I've walked through this, there's some things that have stood out, and I wanna just dial in by way of application. I've hinted at a few. Let me get to some very specific things. Why does glorification matter? Let me give you a few implications. The first is this. Throughout the Bible, God links glorification and the word hope. Glorification is the basis of hope And so I want to call you today to point your heart towards glorification. There's a reason why this doctrine is a part of the new heaven and the new earth, and there's a reason why we are told so much about this as it relates to future glory. And there is something about the promise of glorification that intends to create hope within us. Romans 5, 2. Look at this through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. We boast in the hope that I'm going to share in the glory of God, which means that no matter what path that God has you on, if you're a follower of Jesus, for every single person it ends in the same narrative, that being You're glorified and made into the image of Christ. You don't get to choose the path. You don't get to pick the means. You don't get to pick the road that you're on. But the beautiful reality is that at the end of the day, it ends in glorification. So if you're weary, if you find yourself discouraged, if you're in church today and you're downcast, or if you're just sick and tired of the brokenness within you or in the world around you, what you need to do is point your heart towards glorification. If you're weary of the sinfulness in other people, you need to point your heart and say, God, one day you're gonna make all this right. Until now, I can't fix this on my own, but one day you will, and I'm thankful that at the end of the day, you're gonna make all of this right. And God, I can't fix everything that's within me but I long for the day when when you're going to make it right. Or if you just wake up some morning and you're just discouraged and weary, and that that happens. There's mornings I wake up, and for no reason, I'm just down. And I look at my soul, and I'm like, why am I down? It's just part of the brokenness of the world. And what I need to do is take the scriptures and use them as a window to see the glory of God and to see the plan in my life and use the scriptures to reorient my mind and heart to say, God, would you help me to love your glory and to love the glorification that is yet to come? It may be that part of the reason why your joy begins to suffer is because your attention is not focused, is focused too much on what you can see and not on the glory yet to be revealed. Number two. Glorification is important because it is where sanctification leads, and so we are called to fight hard and then rest assured. This is important. 
In Romans 8, we learn that God's redemptive plan leads to glorification. So justification leads to glorification. In other words, you were saved from your sins so that you could then live out an imperfect righteousness with the hope that one day God's gonna complete that work. But the problem is, is that we never fully complete the work on earth. 1 John 3, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. We've already read that verse, but then notice the next one. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So if you long for glory and you love the beauty of God's glory and you love the new heaven and the earth, then there's an effect where then you're leaning in on what it means to purify himself even as he is pure. We fight hard knowing that God is the one who's going to do this work, that he began this good work and he will complete it. It means that we fight hard, resting in the promise that one day he's gonna complete it. So why does God not allow us to reach perfection in this lifetime? Here's why I think he does not allow us to do that. Because friend, if you could achieve your own perfection of godliness in this lifetime, you wouldn't need God. You would be God. And the reason why in parenting or discipleship or counseling or just kind of coming alongside a friend, why you can't help everyone be perfect and your actions don't result in perfection is because if you could grab a hold of that brass ring, you would be godless. And so one of God's aims in glorification and making it his work is to call us to be a righteous and godly people while we are here on the earth, and yet at the same time, to create within us a longing, a gap between where we are and where we would want to be and say, God, one day, someday, you're gonna make this right, and one day you're gonna change what I can't change, which are my desires, and you are so gonna fundamentally change who I am that every thought, every desire, every appetite, every longing will always be set towards you. And God, that is not the case now, no matter how hard I try. So I need you. Third, glorification is what we taste now in part, so therefore we should rejoice in what is to come. So there's this passage in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that talks about there's a, a progression of one degree of glory to another. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I've talked negatively about the fact that we, we can't grab a hold of it, but this text tells us that while we can't grab a hold of it, we can see that there's some aspect of transformation that's happening. 
We can look at our own lives and realize that God, by his spirit, over our lifetime, has caused us to be transformed from one degree of glory into another. Sure, it's not as far as we would want it to go, but you can look back on your life and you can see how you have changed. You have different desires. True, they're not perfect desires. They're they're not completely righteous desires, but those desires have changed over your lifetime. And you can look back and see that progressional change that's taking place. Or if you're a parent, your children are never going to be perfect. But hopefully you can look back and see the progressive maturity of Christ's likeness that's happening in them. And the reason why we're talking about this particular reality is that you can look back and realize that that beautiful transformation that happened in them or happened in you, as miraculous as that is, is a foretaste of what is yet to come. That that transformation is a marker. You think that's incredible? You think your desires have changed remarkably in this lifetime? Just wait until the new heaven and the new earth when every aspect of both body and soul are absolutely transformed by the creative power of a righteous and holy God. So we are able to see that process being worked out in our lives. And as we see righteousness gaining a stronger and stronger footing in our lives, it serves to strengthen our faith and joy in what is yet to come. So transformation in this lifetime only whets our appetite for what is yet to come. So you think you've changed a little bit now. Just wait until the new heaven and the new earth. And so instead of being overly sad about everything that hasn't changed, How about if we just take a look back and say, but look, brother or sister, how much has changed? And God was the one who did that. And that miracle is beautiful to behold. And then finally, this one grabbed me significantly. Glorification is the fuel of endurance So do not lose heart. Over and over, as I began studying this, I saw it, where texts began to emerge about joy in suffering or not losing heart. For instance, Romans 8, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you compare sufferings versus the glory, and you're like, no, glory is far more valuable. So these sufferings, while they're hard, they're absolutely worth it because this glory is unbelievable. Or 2 Corinthians 3, 18, a text we just looked at, and yet there's a verse that follows it that we often miss. Again, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, so we do not lose heart. Why? Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So over and over, don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. The sufferings are worth comparing to the glory. When you understand the beauty of what God is going to bring to you and when you value his glory and his glory reflected in you, it gives you the ability to endure sorrow, to deal with suffering, to not lose heart when ministry 
ministry is difficult to not give up when you're fighting your own sin and to not quit on your kids or somebody else in your small group when they're wrestling because at the end of the day, you know that this is a work that God's going to do and when he does it, it's going to be glorious. So we continue to press in and lean on all the while saying, oh Lord Jesus, would you just come and make all this right? But in the meantime, we don't give up and throw up our hands and say, I can't do this anymore because at the end of the day, it wasn't up to you in the first place. You see what heaven does for earth? Awakening our taste buds for glory helps us when things don't turn out like we want. Awakening taste buds for the beauty of God's glory in us helps us to be able to endure when life is difficult. It means that trials and losses and struggles can be seen through this this lens of future glory. And it means you can joyfully endure pain and challenges because you've set your sight on something more valuable. So the question that I have is this, are you homesick for future glory? Or are you so captivated by what's happening in the world so captivated by the way you thought your life was going to be, so captivated with all the things that you, you, you wanted to be able to grab a hold of, that something strange has happened. Your joy and endurance has begun to falter because at the end of the day, your sights are being set on the wrong glory. The Bible gives us a vision of what true glory is all about, and it is more, church, than just a future state. It is a compelling promise in the future that's meant to redefine what you love now. It's meant to redefine what you live for today. It's meant to redefine what's worth really even dying for. So glorification then becomes our hope and our motivation to live right now as citizens of heaven whose sights are set on future glory. So Father, would you now help us to see the way in which this call for glory or this call to see glory can give us endurance, can give us the ability to choose joy in the midst of sorrow. God, make us a people who see you in the word, who do hard things because we believe that you have something far greater for us in the future. Would you let this affect the way that we talk with one another, the way we give, the way we parent, the way we deal with friends who are struggling? And thank you that at the end of the day, you're the one who's going to make all things new, and we long for that day. So make us even more homesick for that day and that reality. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.